Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. So we're excited to have Sean Kennedy with us today. Sean is a entrepreneur, an innovator, a naturalist, a geologist, and a political political operative. So welcome, Sean. Well, thanks, Charles. Great to be here. Great just to see you again. You know, it's just for a little background. Sean and I had, and I have known each other for over five decades, probably now. So we go way back to when we were in single digits and young kids growing up in the same neighborhood. A long, long time ago. Great neighborhood, great group of kids, and it was, uh, um, you know, there must have been two or three dozen guys relatively our age within a 10-block radius, so we had a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of us are still good friends today, so those friendships have lasted a lifetime. So I think I'd like to start when I do this with every one of our guests is um, going back to when you were young, what, what inspired you um, with the creativity and the innovation to drive all your diverse interests? I mean, you, you got a lot going on, my friend. I think growing up in a university city really made you realize that a lot was possible. There was a lot of dynamic people in our lives growing up here. A lot of us were professors' kids, and we saw the people that were coming and going into the city, into our family lives, among their grad students. At least my dad's grad students came from all over the world. I'm not sure if you, your father had an international, international group of students, but if that was a good exposure, my father traveled a lot, so I knew the world was possible. But I really think... Uh, Another commonality is you'd already stepped out of our Boy Scout troop by the time I entered it, but we had two or three geology professors, I think at one point geology professors who were scout leaders, and we had the most incredible field trips that we got to see, you know, go caving and spend night in cave, the night in caves and go um, looking at fossils and... Um, really wide range of, of outdoor activities. And I think that helped me but as a naturalist. We also lived on the edge of town, so getting out into the woods. I know you guys were older, but you were out building forts and we emulated you. And we were, we were really all budding and naturalists and outdoorsmen without really knowing it. So I think that, that created the foundation, both coming from an international community with interesting people coming and going and then being exposed to a lot of natural things. Well, it certainly played a big role in my life. Nature was between Boy Scouts and every day after school, heading out into the woods and hanging out and in nature. Um, you know, maybe we should start with the, the international aspect of what's going on in the world and some of the creative things you're doing and serving people in the Ukraine and uh, some of the energy work you're doing over there also trying to help the people have power and some heat and um, you know keep critical functions going this winter. So my career, as you mentioned, is is quite broad, but in some ways it's by 
bifurcated in that some of it comes out of my interest in public service, and that leads me to politics and the things I've done in politics and working with nonprofits and and other groups that are are I'd say progressively orientated for the most part. Then the other part is science and technology, being a geologist. But the way I ended up being able to travel, um, both was originally with my family, but then I went to a geology field camp one summer in Switzerland and Scotland and got to explore Europe a bit on my own. And then I took a, I went to be an exploration geologist, but I took a leave in 92 from working in Utah as a geologist to work for Bill Clinton just for a short period. Well, my job on the campaigns was being what's on what's called the advanced staff, the people that fly in ahead, set up the rallies. They look like, you know, they just magically happen, but there's a huge amount of planning very quickly. And when you talk about being able to think on your feet and be innovative and creative and put things together that are, are different than any imaginative, uh, that was good work, good seed work for that. But in any event, I went on to the U.S. Department of Energy as a political appointee. But once a month or every six weeks, I get lent to the White House when the president was traveling. So if he was going to somewhere like, in this case, Ukraine, I'd go on the team. And the team had a bunch of different people doing different jobs. But mine was being the designer, producer, director of the big event. And probably one of the three or four biggest crowds we ever had for Bill Clinton was in 2000 in Ukraine. And that was right in front of Mikhailovsky Cathedral, which you always see in the background of like the CNN reporters, you know, the gold domes there. We had a 200 person possibly a crowd there and it was magnificent. I made some great contacts and I managed to go back a few years later with Bill Clinton as ex-president when he went, they called me occasionally to go put together his trips as ex-president. I was hired by Earth Day Network, who's one of my clients in my, my sort of political media world, to put on the first Earth Day concert ever in Ukraine and down in Maidan, where all the big, big protests happened. I produced a, a huge concert with some of the biggest bands in Ukraine. And then after the Orange Revolution, when President Yushchenko, uh, who came, emerged out of the, you know, basically became president after the Orange Revolution. The, his people hired me when he came to Washington, D.C. to in the square that's named after their, their poet, uh, Shevchenko, who's the national poet of Ukraine. Uh, we did an Orange Revolution-style rally for all the Ukrainians living in the region came to it. So I had a deep connection to Ukraine, and when the war started, of course, I wanted to do something, which is, I guess, what those that can do, do. And I was watching TV and I saw World Central Kitchen was setting up there. World Central Kitchen was um, founded by Jose Andreas, a very well-known chef out of Washington, D.C., who now has about 30 restaurants. And he goes into disaster areas with his team and they bring in other celebrity chefs, essentially, and they set up field kitchens and they organize um, feeding masses, very high quality food, comfort food for the people that are there. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't be making you know, the perfect burrito in Ukraine, you'd be making the perfect bowl of borscht. 
And they flew in a field kitchen that had eight paella pans that were bigger than this table. They were at least two meters across. Each one of them could hold, I think it was 1,800 bowls of soup. They had eight of these things running full time and then were shipping food all up and down the border and pushing out, um, I don't know, tens of thousands of meals a day. Wow. So I volunteered with them and that's sort of the beginning of the, the, the long, long, short beginning of the Ukraine story with me. So you started out serving people of Ukraine food and helping prepare high quality food and that led to other endeavors to help with big power generators um, bringing them in from outside of Ukraine to help yeah. run critical functions or what was that all about? Well, I was happy to be there for two weeks slicing and dicing right when the war started most of the refugees were coming out. But I also thought I might be able to create a little media attention or help with fundraising. I did do a GoFundMe and raise about $30,000 while I was there but I, um, to help with the Ukraine effort, but they're, they really, World Central Kitchen raises money. Just Be Jeff Bezos at the time wrote a $100 million check to them. They, they really didn't need my help in one of my two, two areas of expertise. And I was happy to slice and dice, but I knew I wanted to do more. So I went back for two weeks in August and toured through three cities before I was on the border of Ukraine, in Ukraine, and looking for an organization that needed my, my help in what I, I traditionally do. I'm a, not that great of a cook. I shouldn't be. So you're an organizer? Yeah, more of an organizer. So bottom line is I found a group called Vostok SOS that had been formed right after the 2014 invasion of the Russians in Crimea in the Donbass. They were all externally placed, externally, internally displaced people. Basically, they were refugees within Ukraine. The Russians were occupying their area. And they put together a organization to aid other internally displaced people. So they do everything from feeding. They produce a thousand, a thousand boxes a day with the supplies for a family three for two weeks. They are um, running several shelters and camps. They have, uh, at the time I was there, they were just opening three shelters through, for women that have been through some of the worst, worst of the worst. They've got a hotline manned by four people 24-7 with lawyers, psychiatrists, um, people that can solve any problem. They're doing extractions, buildings on the front lines with an elderly person on the fifth floor, a disabled person. They'll send a van and a team to carry them out and get them out or else they'll send a whole buses up to the front lines to pull people out that need to come out. They were very amazing. They just raised $2 million in Estonia and they hadn't raised a dime yet in the U.S. And I thought, well, they can raise $2 million in Estonia, where I believe you had a grandmother from, maybe. Right. And um, we probably can do at least that well here. So I'm in the process of forming a 501c3, which will be called Bostock SOS USA. And we're in the last part of, of um, selecting a board for it. And hopefully we'll have an operating 501c3 nonprofit in the US to raise money and awareness for Bostock SOS. 
So were you actually on the on the front lines in places that were getting bombed or had uh, been no, bombed? No, I was in Kiev, Lviv, and Uzharad in August. So probably the closest bombing actually when I was on the Polish border feeding people a couple of days after I got there and coming in with me were a bunch of foreign volunteers coming to fight with the training camp was just over the border and this was in March, it's a little like two weeks after the war started and that camp got bombed. That's the closest, I think it was eight or nine miles actually away from where I was, closest that I know of a bomb hitting when I was there. But I did wake up my first first uh, morning in Kiev to air raid sirens, and there were three or four a day. But there was no active bombing in any of the cities that I was in mm. while I was there. So I did go up and look at uh, a friend of mine from when I produced the Earth Day concert, lived in Irpin, which was about as far south as the Russians northern offense made it and I went mm -hmm. their apartment had a rocket propelled grenade go through the apartment below them and above them and there they were they fortunately both she and her husband worked for western companies so they were able to get their apartment they had some money to do it but if you don't have money there's no insurance policy to rebuild your apartment there's no government money for that it is tough so they're building some mix of people putting windows back in and people just putting plastic up and I imagine this winter's really tough for them. I imagine, so. I don't know how many people have lost their homes or on the streets as a result yeah. of all this, but it's gotta be tough there in winter. Oh, with it's it. millions, millions of displaced people. I wanna say it's about 12 million internally displaced and 12 million have left the country, at least that was a few years. Few months ago, so and maybe a total of 24 million. Yeah, about out of 40 to, million in total. Yeah, 40, 45 million. Yep, that's a lot of people are on the move. And, you know, 20 percent of the land is, if their land right now is occupied by the Russians, one way or another, whether it be through the 2014 invasion or this. So, it's substantial. It's a big country by European standards. Well, they have um, tenacity and commitment and fierce fighters. I mean. Yep, doesn't sound like they're giving up anytime soon. Yep, and if we would give them more, more weapons and more tools, they could probably be more effective and yep. cut down on some of the damage. And there's numerous tracks to help out. There's the humanitarian side, of course. The U.S. government's doing a good job on arming them, but needs to do more and training as well as the European Union and much of the world. I think has come coming in support of Ukraine. And then there's the other part that started in October. That's the destruction of the infrastructure. And my particular interest is in energy um, in a number of my different endeavors. And I, when they started blowing up the substations and cutting off power to people, I decided that might be an area where I can help, help as well. So I've gone on to uh, begin working to source electrical equipment, generators, transformers, switchgear, lines for Ukraine and working with the U.S. government trying to work out a, a mechanism to use U.S. funds to pay for it. Now, we haven't gotten, gotten there yet, but my one of my main businesses is solar energy development. If I order a transformer for a large solar project now, what people think of as a solar farm, I'll be told it's a three-year wait for a transformer to go in a, the substation that we'd have to build for that solar farm. 
So you can imagine if you have dozens and dozens of substations that are being blown up, you either have to rebuild those transformers if you can, which often you can't, or else you've got to wait for new ones. So the power is not coming on tomorrow, even if the war ends then. It's going to be a long time. There's big companies like Siemens and General Electric and all that are, I'm sure, being contracted right now to rebuild the grid over time. But there's a whole lot of Band-Aids that are going to be needed between now and, and the years to come. So I've been working on... Um, you can find equipment, but who pays for the equipment? Obviously, the Ukrainians are pretty strung out financially, having mm -hmm. to operate in this, run a major war against the Russians. So they aren't paying for it. And then the European Union has offered to pay for it. There's groups like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. They're likely to fund um, the government-owned transmission company, but the local distribution companies that provide power to your home, they can't access that money. It's fairly complicated how you get money in. Now, the Biden administration has made two pledges, one of $55 million, another one of 53 more recently. The Secretary Anthony Blinken announced in Romania a few weeks ago. The reality is that doesn't buy you much in the way of transmission equipment or generators. Um, that's very, very expensive equipment, but it's, it's a start. Are these portable transformers or are these fixed? We're looking at, you know, drive by a big substation that operates, you know. A, On a semi. A, yeah, these things are, you know, sometimes half as big as this room. Anywhere from as big as, the smaller ones would be from the back of our chairs to here to here. They're ones for, they aren't the kind that hang on a pole that you see right. that almost look like a soda soda can up there. Sometimes three of those. These are big boxes that These sit on concrete big, platforms. Yeah, exactly. And there's major amounts of wiring. They're basically a series of coils is what they are to convert voltages. So they're the ones that take the high voltage, step it down to a lower voltage that can be distributed out through the system. You blow those up. If you destroy these these wound components, that's miles of wire that has to be rewound and all. So what I've been working on is I've been I've met with um, high high level people at the U.S. Department of State. I'm in contact with the main distribution company and transmission company in Ukraine. Um, we're communicating with the Ukrainian First Lady's office today. I made contact with their Ministry of Energy, we're starting to, we made contact, unfortunately Christmas landed right in the middle of this effort right. with the people at US Department of Energy are they're dealing with this, trying to figure out um, where to get equipment, how to pay for the equipment and how to get it there and who will receive the equipment when it gets there. So there's a bunch of pieces, it's a fairly new effort so I can't tell you how it works out, but it's certainly worth trying, trying to do some good with it and hopefully maybe use the next 10 years of my energy career being involved in rebuilding the electrical infrastructure in Ukraine. So you were over there in year 2000 supporting the um, Clinton administration and the engagement he, he was doing over there 
do any the proximity to any of those relationships help you with what you're trying to do today in the Ukraine? And are you still friends with some of those people you developed friendships with 20 plus years ago? You know, there's friendships that felt grew out of those friendships. For instance, if we had one of these huge Clinton events, usually because so many people have to go through the metal detector, it can take hours and people are standing there on the street. So you try and give them something to do and to create an atmosphere and all. I'd often produce a concert as part of it, have a couple band stages there and uh-huh. switching out bands. And it was novel enough in those countries at the time that it would be a live television program there essentially. There's a guy named Joseph Lemire I met who had an American-owned radio station in Ukraine in 2000, and he provided the DJs and helped us book the bands. Wonderful guy. He's no longer in Ukraine. But when I went back to produce the Earth Day concert, he was very helpful then. And so one of his guys who worked for him then is my contact working with um, working with the First Lady of Ukraine's office. I named Yuri, and a great guy I was talking to him today as I was walking through Wilson's Orchard. Um, and so that's one contact. Another guy named um, Morgan Williams is the head of the U.S.-Ukraine Business Council. I believe I met him when I worked on President Yushchenko's visit to Washington. It might have been before that, but sometime in there I didn't meet him on the original trip. But it's sort of those first contacts led to other contacts. The U.S.-Ukraine Business Council obviously is very helpful on the, the matters I'm working on. So, yeah, these, it's, a, you know, relationships are, are beyond one person. They're the people those people bring in. And, um, Just whole networks of people. Yeah, it really is engaged. networks of people. And getting to, I met with the Chief of Staff to the Secretary of State. I know her from the about this initiative in Ukraine. Well, I know her from the Clinton days when she worked for Madeleine Albright, right? Just a much junior position, more or less parallel to where I was. And we kept in touch. And when she was with the Albright Stonebridge Group, she, you know, helped Madeleine Albright start her company. Well, then when I had a previous company, Summit International Relations, we had numerous things we needed help from and Albright Stonebridge stepped in and helped us out with it. So, you know, these are lifetime, like us, it's lifetime relationships when you can um, create enough friendship and goodwill and be open to helping people out, often they'll be there to help you. Excellent. So when you um, joined the uh, Department of Energy, how did that appointment happened and how did you find your way into the energy segment? Well, it wasn't direct to solar energy, I'll tell you. Um, My background had been as an exploration geologist and there was in the 1980s a big gold boom in Nevada and then into Utah, something called Carlin type deposits and there weren't a lot of geology jobs at the time and I was very lucky to to get into that game, but I worked throughout Nevada as an exploration geologist. The thing I like about that job is it has explorer in the title, which I just thought just <laughs> made, me, made me feel good. Not a lot of people get paid to be an explorer, but I did really roam much of the backcountry in Nevada in my, in my 20s and you know, got paid to hike around and look at rocks, which is kind of, you know, like a, 
Boy Scout stream, I guess, and I was very happy to do that. But the Department of Energy had an initiative uh, to dispose of all of our civilian radioactive waste. Probably um, a lot of people don't know, we've never disposed of a single fuel rod in our 70 years of having civilian nuclear reactors. They're all sitting there where they were generated. Well, we were studying, the U.S. Department of Energy was studying a place called Yucca Mountain, which was on the Nevada test site where all the mm -hmm. nuclear testing happened. And those strata, those layers, I knew from another place, you know, having worked in that region of Nevada, it was kind of cool, but I'm not sure anybody in the political world knew that. Coming out of the, the leave I took from the mining business was... Um, for three months doing this showbiz side of politics. Mm -hmm. I, they flew us all to Little Rock for election night and I was gonna head back to Utah where I was working at the time, living in Salt Lake City, which is pretty good duty for a geologist. And I, um, a guy on election night said to me, Sean, I'm gonna get something really big on the inauguration in Washington. I want you to come work for me. And I thought, well, that would be cool for a couple months. I still didn't know there were low-level political appointments. So I called my boss, and he was happy not to have another field geologist in the middle of the winter in the office and gave me another mm -hmm. couple months' leave of absence, and I went to work on the inaugural. I got to Washington, and everybody's talking about what they want to do in the administration. And I learned about Schedule C political appointees, which are really the support staff or the cabinet members and the assistant secretaries and all. And I thought, well, you knuckleheads are going to get a political appointment, I better see get if I can. Well. <laughs> I can't get one. So I, um, there's something called the Plum Book, which used to be a published book. It's now on the internet. There are all the political appointments. So I get, got from the National Bureau of Imprinting, I think is where you got it from at the time, which happened to be in DC. Copy the Plum Book, and it looked like Department of Interior is probably where I belonged if you looked at my, my interests and what I'd done at that time. But they, and it takes, a, it takes many months. It's not like the inauguration's over. These lower level positions don't get filled in until the upper level positions get in. I actually went back to Utah and worked a couple months. And then suddenly they wanted me to go. We interview at Department of Energy and it happened to be the Office of Civilian Radioactive Waste Management. And I don't think anybody that sent me there knew how perfect that was given what my Background, background was uh, it's just but the head of the the director was a guy named Dan Dreyfus and Dan had been chief of staff for the house I want to say it's energy and natural resources that might be the senate name but the equivalent mm -hmm. and he'd retired and he was brought back to take on this almost impossible project of radioactive waste came out of retirement to do it I learned so much from him. I feel like the biggest role I played in his life was to come in his office at 6 p.m. and sit at his conference table as he wound down for the day, <laughs> told me stories. But he was a, really a guru and really understood politics and how to make things happen. And I, I learned so much. So that's how I landed at Department of Energy. And then through the eight years, I zigged and zagged and ended up on the staff of the secretary and did, did other things along the way. So as a, a staffer on the um, Department of Energy um, leadership team, where did that take you? What did you learn? Oh. 
So much. I mean, I mean, they throw big problems at you and say, go figure this out. Or what is that? What's a day in the life of a senior staffer look like? It depends where you were. I spent, I was put on a team for a while to study the nation's uh, nuclear weapons program. You don't think of it. Most people don't understand that Rick Perry, when he became secretary of energy for Bush, he didn't even know that the nuclear weapons were at Department of Energy at, at the time. And a lot of people that call, including Rick Perry for the um, shuttering of Department of Energy don't understand that, but that's where a huge part of the budget is. Well, um, Vice President Gore was running a reinventing government program, Mm -hmm. and they had every every department basically do a self-study and suggestion of how to downsize and streamline. And I was asked to go, because I knew what a nuke, radioactive nuclide was anyway, which got me better than a lot of people. You, you couldn't study your own area, but I was asked to go into the cluster that studied defense programs. Mm-hmm. And that was an amazing experience in that I got to go to all, you know, the U.S. Department of Energy labs and talk to the, you know, all the senior people, the head of the different labs, people running different programs. The things I learned were incredible. I got a listening to the father of the H-bomb, Edward Teller, play the piano. I saw him in the restaurant at Los Alamos Laboratory and thought, God, I know who that guy, who is that? My partner and I were working on our notes from the day and the older gentleman walked into the bar in the restaurant and we were playing piano in there. You can hear it in a just beautiful piano. And we get up checking out the next morning. People are like, yeah, Edward Teller was playing the piano all night in the bar. You guys should have gone in there. I'm like, uh, you know, the brush with greatness. But getting back into what you learn being a staffer, I mean, there's so many of those stories, both in my White House work and my my DOE work. Uh, so much of it is really special projects. You're, you're flying high. Often um, the cabinet member or the assistant secretary, they don't have time to get down in the minutia and being there at the moment and understanding the minutia. A lot of what I did was talking to the U.S. Geologic Survey, who's doing a lot of the study of Yucca Mountain when we were looking at that. Then later on, I can give you examples of, you know, traveling with the Secretary of Energy when I went to work for the Secretary and just being there. Sometimes you're being almost like a footman in that you're... Harry Reid, Senator Reid from Nevada, once said to me after we were... The secretary and he traveled or spent all day in the Nevada test site looking at the nuclear, you know, testing facilities and going through it. And I'd go a day before and walk through and meet with everybody that he had to meet with. They had to meet with, walking through that. And my job is really to cut off the meeting and keep everybody running. So sometimes it's very logistics and functionary like that. But Harry Reid said to me at the end of the day. You're the nicest, rude person I've ever met. Which, <laughs> and if you talk to people that know Senator Reid, he was not big on compliments, but it was, you know, like having the ability to walk in and cut things off keep and things keep, keep things moving is, is um, a little bit of part of being a staffer, but really knowing when, knowing what's going to happen, what's going to be talked about, what's going to be said, understanding enough. So you can usually, if you're, with whoever your principal, we call them the principal, but whoever your person you're working for, to be able to brief them before 
with enough content that they can get through the, the meeting. Now there's often a policy expert there if it's something very complex, but knowing enough to head off problems or understand what they should see or not see or who they should talk to is, is part of it anyway. So when you left politics, did you go into the energy entrepreneurship business and solar power and where, where did your path take you next, Sean? Immediately, you know, when Clinton lost his job, we all lost our job. I needed to make some money and I had very good contacts among Democrats, nonprofits, and trade unions, and I had a reputation on this this media production side. So immediately I set up Sean Kennedy and Associates Media and just, you know, got things cranking. Unfortunately, um, what is it, you know, eight months into having that business or seven months we had the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, et cetera, which Put made a big damper on all kinds of everybody's events. business. It was a rocky road. It was a little while before I realized I probably did not want to spend my life with uh, just a media business. It's, it's interesting, it's fun, it's useful, and it certainly gets you in um, right circle politically to do other things. But it wasn't my intent when I studied geology and science was always a big passion and interest of mine to only do a series of, of satellite uplinks and media events and whatnot. So I was looking for something else to do and by 2004 I settled on um, the idea of working on Romania and Bulgaria as they entered the European Union. And it was clear that huge amounts of European Union money was was um, being spent there. There were whole sectors that had not been developed. Everything, you know, whether it be from real estate to to renewable energy, communist, communism had left a very dilapidated infrastructure and there were a lot of things of highways went out to be rebuilt. So I formed a partnership with, once again, part of this networking thing. I'd originally met a man named Petri Roman, who was the first prime minister of Romania after the Romanian Revolution, uh, when I was over in Romania in 1997 with Clinton. And actually it was through other contacts that I that knew him previously that I had a chance to spend time with him in 97. And when I went back on Clinton's book tour, probably in about 03 or so, I had lunch with him and he'd been prime minister. He'd won for president of Romania three times with diminishing returns. He was a non-corrupt guy, very corrupt country and really hadn't met any money. And he was asking me about, well, Madeleine Albright, for instance, what does she do to make a living as, in her retirement? What mm -hmm. Sandy Berger, other people that I, I knew or had worked around or with. <clears throat> and I explained generally how, how a firm like we mentioned Albright Stonebridge works and right. who their client base is and what kind of things they facilitate. He seemed to be well-placed. He'd also been Romanian uh, foreign minister after he was prime minister to develop a company like that. So we started a company together called Summit International Relations, primarily to facilitate uh, forming financial and strategic partnerships for for projects in the Balkan Black Sea region with an emphasis on energy, but we got pulled into a lot of 
lot of different things in that world. So your 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 all your project management experience did that come in handy with with what you were trying to do there? And well, it was different, but I think it's the same same set of skills. Um, it's you know doing these things whether it's going into a new country in Eastern Europe, there's a bit of scrounging that goes on. You know, I must, I hate to say it, but a lot of what I've done through my life is going and finding the people and the things that can make something happen. So scrounging through my relationships. So if a solar developer or wind was really getting going about the time, there's big EU incentives about the time Romania and Bulgaria were joined. So, People wanted to develop wind. They knew there were good incentives. They weren't sure who could finance it or where to get the equipment at all. Then I could scrounge through my relationships and bring the right people to the table to work with them. Um, is that organizing compared to like developing a solar project like I am now? It's it's different set of skills. It's it's a lot of. It sounds like you're a traffic. network entrepreneur where yeah. you're just leveraging relationships and contacts and networks to capitalize on current opportunities wherever they might be in countries of interest where you've spent time in the past and yeah, at that stage I was I wasn't a full-fledged developer at that stage when I really switched over to being a full-fledged developer was when as things started to slow down in Romania and Bulgaria after the 2008 economic collapse sort of rippled through in the beginning of 2009 into Europe. Right. A lot of what we were working on and we're making big progress on just died. The EU incentives went away or that, you know, building a logistic, we were involved in a logistics center that we brought the investors in that was going to be built at the Bucharest airport. A lot of that stuff just died and unclear what to do. Well, I'd been meeting with the largest distiller of alcohol in Romania they wanted to move into the fuel ethanol business. They you know, thought of themselves as great distillers, which they were. And there's a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of bootlegging in Romania. And as the economy gets worse, people go back to, to making their own plum brandy and all. And they right. were looking for a way to grow and expand. So I tied into uh, some other entrepreneurs that were trying to develop Iowa-style ethanol plants on the Danube. They were working up in Croatia, and their project had, they'd lost their investor in their project, and the project was essentially dead in the water, and we came up with this idea to build three projects, one in, in Croatia, one in Serbia, and one in, in um, Romania, the ones that was, Prodvin Alcohol was the name of the Romanian company, not that that matters, but it was their concept, you know, would become part of this bigger package, and build three ethanol plants so but they'd given up after they lost their investor the folks that had the croatian project and basically told me you know if you can get this thing going it will you know we'll bring you in at the the level we are in it and so i was de facto project manager for two years for an ethanol plant that never got built but that's really when i i stopped working for developers and building relationships for developers and really became a developer myself. So tell us about that. Where did that um, becoming a developer take you, take you next, Sean? 
Well, I'd had clients that were in numerous areas of renewable energy. I was very interested in continuing to work on things I felt were important and cared about. I also have a lot of government relations background. And when I decided to start my own development company, which is the one I have now, Megawatt, Megawatt Photovoltaic Development, it was gonna be developed solar here. If you look at what has happened to solar pricing, if you strip out what's happening with tax credits and the recent supply chain problems, there's been a roughly a Moore's law-like slope on the price of solar over you know every 18 months or so. It's, it's halved. Yeah, it's not quite that good, but it's pretty rich. And if you looked at that and you looked at the Midwest seven years ago when I started this company, it was clear that at some point you'd be at what's called grid parity, where you can put power on the grid at the same price that is being put on through other sources of energy. And that has come to fruition. It is the cheapest power you can put on the grid now is solar. But there have been between Trump um, putting tariffs on imported solar and between supply chain problems and decreasing tax credits, the Midwest has been rockier than I imagined, but I wanted to develop projects in the Midwest. But I also wanted to develop projects that would utilize my my connections in the government and my knowledge of how government works. Our biggest success has been developing the first large project for the U.S. Postal Service, and that is not in the Midwest. It's in Los Angeles, and we built uh, 11 the team I put together. And I had another guy working with me in, in Megawatt at the time. We put together, developed an 11 megawatt urban solar project, which was at the time the largest urban solar project in the world. So my idea with Megawatt was to develop on brownfield sites, underutilized land. This fit in perfectly with what I wanted Megawatt to be. I wasn't so interested in big solar solar farms in cornfields or on pristine desert, but I got there eventually and I'll tell you why. <laughs> so that uh, 11 megawatt system, how many homes would that power? So one megawatt went to the postal service to run that facility. The other 11 megawatts went to Los Angeles water and power. So they've their, it's their municipal utility essentially mm -hmm. there. And um, the company we brought in and partnered with was a company that had gotten a contract to build, I think 150 megawatts in the desert. This is 2016 when all this is happening. So still relatively little solar being built out there. Right. So, but part of the deal was they had to build 25 megawatts in the service territory. And I think Los Angeles Water and Power was thinking they were gonna put up a whole bunch of small rooftop units versus go and cover the US Postal Service. So we'd gone in and met with uh, the vice president for facilities who has like 8,000 facilities under him at the Postal Service and spent a lot of time coming up with this idea and putting it together. And then we settled on Los Angeles and we tapped into LA to find out how actually who was going to want this power we were going to produce because the postal service couldn't use it. And that's how we found the company that had the contract and pretty much brought the pieces together. Um, 
And what was your initial question? Or ask me that again. Well, I, I ask you how many um, uh, twelve megawatt plant. Oh, the number of houses, the post right? Office and the houses. I mean. So the important thing to get is, you know, um, number of houses has a lot to do with where those houses are. Right here, you've got you've got a great need for air conditioning in a place like this, but most of our heating is probably natural gas heating. Right? right. You've got other places like Phoenix where you're going all day long, but it also you've got what is the solar resource? You've got dry atmosphere in Phoenix. Oh yeah, you get a lot of sun and a lot, lot of, of long days. So <laughs> that number of houses in Iowa might be completely different than LA per megawatt. Um, LA, it's probably 250 or so houses per megawatt. So it's not, it's not so like- you get more efficiency with solar panels in LA than you do in Iowa because there's less cloudy days. And yeah, a little further south, it's cloudy days. So it's the things that affect it really are atmospheric moisture and latitude. So the further south you are, the more direct shot the sun has at it more of the year and the more you produce. So as the visionary entrepreneur, you'd go and figure out, oh, there's an opportunity with the post office in LA, and then there's this other opportunity. <clears throat> you put the general scope of the project together, then you'd go find a financial partner that came in and with the capital to make it happen? Or is, yep. is that how that would work? Basically? That's how that one worked. We actually found someone that already had a pre-existing condition contract with Los Angeles uh, Water and Power that were ready. So that one makes it all look very simple. Let me tell you about the ones that don't work. <laughs> so I spent years in Detroit. Detroit has 40 square miles of vacant lots and vacant buildings. Right, they, lots of space for solar panels. One would think. So this whole idea of utilizing brownfields and underutilized land and urban infill and government relations, and we worked this so hard. Came up with the idea before there were any, I think, microgrids. I mean, we read about that. Didn't think of the idea of a microgrid, but mm -hmm. came up with the idea of having a microgrid in Detroit and found partners there and identified a part of the city that everything would be powered off this island of Bowl, meaning you can completely let it run on its own. Got Argonne National Laboratory when the DOE labs signed up to do all the engineering. Got HUD to commit part of a big grant they were giving to Detroit to the whole thing. Um, really years of di running different ideas by the <clears throat> mayor's office and I'll tell you, there's not a bit of, there's a little bit of solar on one of the the places we identified that they, they let the utility, Detroit Thomas Edison is the monopoly utility there, go build solar on. Basically, they ate our lunch on that little piece of it, and uh, Detroit Thomas Edison managed to get the money that was supposed to be earmarked for HUD for our project or get our project, the feasibility study done on our project to do a more broader study on how solar would work in Detroit. Right. There's a thing I refer to as study install. When you don't really want to do something, you can study the heck out of it. So the utility got got the money pointed at. So they, at, they basically found a way to take your idea and monetize it and cut you out. Well, to make the city happen, who wanted some urban solar, the 
land we'd located, the utility said, well, no, we'll just do it ourselves. We won't work with them, we'll do it ourselves. And look at, um, utilities have a lot of political sway and generally if they, if they wanna do something like that, they can and they will. The whole thing with having the HUD secretary announced during a speech in Detroit that out of this, I forget if it was eight or 11 or 13 million or something, grant that I think it was about 500,000 would go towards studying our initiative and we're the ones that worked it in there. And the fact that, you know, after a while the mayor's office diverted that money to a study that answered questions we already knew the answers to. It's, it, that one soured me on um, government relations, challenges, mm -hmm. if you've got to make your living um, by the, the outcome versus working on government relations because someone else is paying you. So I am, um, that's when I started to look to the cornfields after that one. So from Detroit to, to Iowa cornfields, and what made the Iowa cornfields attractive? Well, a little bit of the bureaucratic challenges we found in trying to do other things here. Um, I've worked on a brownfield site outside of Perry, Iowa for an awful long time for years, maybe eight years, trying to work with a big um, pork producer there to build a solar for them, city-owned land. Finally, the utility came in and built a little to satisfy the city and get them to sh shut up about it, a little one megawatt system on that land after we'd put yours in. But here in our hometown of Iowa City, I've had dozens of meetings with the University of Iowa, the, the school board with ACT, probably given eight different plans to build surplus land, thereby ACT solar on it with the city of Iowa City, with the county. And generally what we hear is the utility, after spending a year or two of working with them, they go talk to the utility about it, and then the utility will be, hey, we're, we're giving them wind power. You don't really need to do this. And if you give people a reason not to do something, they generally will do it. I don't know if you know the, the high schoolers here in Iowa City, they occupied the superintendent's office, you know, three or four years ago to force them to put solar on the schools, and that led to the city's study install. And, you know, by that point, their study showed that the best thing to do is to rely on use the renewable energy being provided by all the ample wind from the utility, which is great. I applaud the utility for that. And then if maybe have a couple of small projects with the utility owning them at the different schools. Now we had a plan to cover every one of the every one of the schools we could. We found a way to put solar on it here mm -hmm. and that all died. So after looking at that four years ago I went south of town where the big substation that services the whole area is and started looking at land down there and decided, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's build a big utility project here and provide the power needed by the schools, by the, by the um, university, by ACT, and by, you know, the residents of the community. You just feed it right into the grid there at that yeah, big substation. Work, work, work with the utility, and that's, that's what we're... We're doing now, and we've got a uh, 150 megawatt project in collaboration 
the utility that we're developing that will provide enough power to power all the residents residences in Iowa City. So, um, you know, some of the the right idea comes out of the failures of the wrong idea, I guess. If the right idea is the one that works, right? So. Well, congratulations on that. It sounds like that's moving forward and has a high probability of coming uh, out. We're, we're delighted to be working with the utility on this one, and they are good partners, and they're the ones that have the, the money behind them to get it done. It's a $200 million-ish project, and um, they can use all the power, and they're delivering the power to the people here that need it. So it's still local power developed by local people, which was sort of one of our, one of our brands. Uh, we believe in distributed generation and that you need to produce the power as close to the community as you can to create resiliency. Yeah, I think a lot of communities would take some pride in knowing that they're doing something that's green and ecological and in the community to support the community. Yeah, I think, I think they do, and this is certainly a community that prides itself on being, being environmentally minded, but it was interesting to, you know, when working with the smaller entities, not to find anybody that would, would take a big, <coughs> a big step forward, and they were happy to let the utility do it for them. So that's what they want, we plan to please. Before we leave energy, I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit based on your, your time in, in Europe, but with the whole thing with Russia and the Russian pipeline and, you know, the dependence that Germany and other countries put on Russian natural gas and oil, um, what do you see the opportunities and the shifts in terms of um, NATO independence from Russia? And, you know, how does that play out? Uh, is it any time in our lifetime or... Well, I think it's being accelerated right now. I think there's there's a little chance we'll go back to the the strong dependence on Russian gas that there has been in Europe. Right now, they're building import terminals to bring natural gas in. Germany, for instance, was very far ahead. You know, 20 years ago, they were building solar everywhere, so they've already taken care of a bit of the problem where they ran into. I guess the logjam here is not having a natural gas supply cut off quickly, but they're very focused on a renewable energy future over there. I think it will accelerate accelerate that between that and create an import market that doesn't rely on Russia. How, how much of that is solar versus wind? Well, you'd think Germany has... The, the factor that's put in the equation is called insulation that looks at what the solar resource is. We talked about latitude and atmospheric moisture and snowfall and all the different things that affect. Germany has an insulation like, you know, Buffalo, New York. It's really about as bad as it can get. And the fact that they've been able to build out as much solar as they have is impressive. I imagine they'll keep doing it. I think solar has more local appeal in densely populated areas because you get over the next hill. You don't see solar. You put up wind, you see it forever. You also are limited in where you can put put wind. So I think solar is going to be both in the U.S. and in Europe a greater and greater part of the equation just because NIMBY is not in my backyard on having a wind turbine there. 
um, will restrict where they can go as well as wind just doesn't always blow where you want it to and when you yeah. want it to. Well, do you think Moore's Law will continue to drive down the cost of solar as fast as it has in the last decade? I just don't know enough about that to tell you. I mean, I'd like it to it would certainly make it. There's no reason why manufacturing shouldn't get better and better. The capacity, in some ways you're limited, but there's a lot of new materials they're working on and developing. I'd actually be interested to meet with some people at one of the national labs and see what what is coming. I'm no longer really in the flow of that information. But, uh, you know, some breakthroughs are simple as making them bifacial modules, which they've done recently where they they can get reflective energy from from coming off the grass or snow, whatever's there. So most panels you get now are bifacial, right? That makes a big jump in, in efficiency and therefore lowers the cost per per kilowatt hour of energy you're, you're producing. Yeah, I imagine at some point too, the technology to convert the sun's power into energy will get even more and more efficient mm-hmm. with a lot of... Yeah. A lot of energy coming that's lost and not been able to con- yep. convert. So, well, right now in our home state of Iowa, what is it? Sixty percent of corn is going for ethanol. Right, that is a very, very poor delivery system for energy. If you, if we think that photosynthesis is being the ultimate tool for capturing the sun's energy, but there's only a few weeks or months when that land is capturing energy and it's very inefficient amount that's actually covered with blades of corn grass that can can collect you know probably doesn't have a good carbon footprint either that's right the cost to develop and the the subsidies for that are thrown into ethanol plants i i wouldn't even want to know but they've got to be huge i ran a yeah well you're you're right about the subsidies but i think every form of energy is subsidized and one way or another, um, ethanol certainly is. But for use of land, we could cover, we could shut off all other um, generating in the state, all wind, all nuclear, all coal, all gas, and cover less than 1% of cropland with solar panels and provide all the energy used in the state here. Very little land, huge amounts of energy. Also, per acre of corn, you can take a 40 mile an hour, a 40 mile gallon car and run it about 10,000 miles. Put that on solar, get yourself a big old battery, put that all into a Tesla, you will go a million miles for an acre per year. So it's two orders of magnitude. If we're moving to it, we've already made a decision. Our farmland's been used for transportation. Let's do it effectively and do it with electric cars and solar instead of ethanol. Right. Well, um, the, I think the last area I'd like to cover today, Sean, has to do with, with nature and your um, your endeavors in beekeeping. And, and how did you get started with beekeeping and what sparked your curiosity and might tell us about some of the fun visible things that have happened in Washington, D.C. as it relates to bees and honey production. Well, beekeeping is my my hobby, but we do have it set up as a bee business called Bee Curious LLC. 
We may have the largest um, apiary in the whole city. We get up to midsummer around <coughs> 30 hives. We keep them at the, the Swiss Embassy, and I say we because I've got a bunch of mentees. I, I will Thomas Sawyer, anybody that wants to be Thomas Sawyer done on beekeeping. So, um, but I've been very fortunate. I live three blocks away from the Swiss Embassy, and the Swiss ambassador has just been very generous with, with their space. But I got interested as a child. My preschool had a beehive. We used to watch them. So there was a swarm in my neighborhood where I rode my bicycle through it and then watched as a beekeeper came to collect them. And I always thought it was cool. And I really meant to have a life, as I mentioned, as a geologist and work outdoors and be in nature. And this whole Washington thing was a little curved, so I've always been looking for ways to get outdoors and connect with nature. And um, one of them is I work in my garden, and doing that I got stung by, by a hornet, and I started watching videos on hornets, and next thing the YouTube will take you right down the rat hole to everything else similar, and I'm watching beekeeping videos. I'm like, I always wanted to do that. So I, I tried to get in a beekeeping class and it was full, so I just decided to teach myself. And there were things I didn't realize that were like, you know, fifth year practices. Like, uh, I've never bought a bee. I've, all my bees have caught in the wild when swarming or removed them from people's houses. My second bees were a structural cutout where they invaded some guy's porch and I cut open the porch and removed them. Now, my first ones I caught in a swarm trap that I made and put up in a, a tree. And I'm very proud to be curious. We're really a bee rescue, and we have all our bees are ones that have been caught in some phase of swarming or after they've been invaded a, a residence. Uh, why is it important to catch them while they're swarming? Well, it's because it's, it's a reproductive strategy. The swarm is basically the colony splitting, and Half of them are going to create new colonies. You got to think of the organism as the colony, not any particular bee. And all organisms have to replicate. So what happens is you get um, these swarms, and they're very vulnerable. They're outside the hive. They can get stuck in a storm. They can be eaten by something. They can be, you know, killed with pesticides. It's said between maybe. 20 and 30% of all swarms survive the first year. <clears throat> so it's getting them and getting so it's them. a small percentage of the bees that when they split that actually survive. Yeah, that's wow. Because so they find a, a home that doesn't suit them and then they don't get enough honey stored in there. They don't have enough space. They need the honey. The honey is not really for our enjoyment. It's there to run this furnace, this ball of bees that's right now out there, every beehive vibrating in the center of that's about 93 degrees and that's where the queen in the middle is. of winter when it's 20 below zero exactly. they're still vibrating and vibrating. eating the honey and yep that's a honey fired furnace and so if they don't have enough honey if they don't select a home that will let them store it or something happens along the way they, yeah it's a high risk thing so we've been um lucky enough to be able to capture a lot of swarms Every year I've been doing it, moved after the first year to the Swiss Embassy, still keep a couple couple um, hives on my garage roof, roof for protection and ornamentation, but um, they are, you know, 
mostly there just to be able to see him come and go and focus on the Swiss embassy. The ambassadors planted a pollinator meadow. The bees use a lot of water. In the midsummer, every hive will be using a gallon of water a day. That means the bees have to go in their tiny little second stomachs, their honey stomachs, or crop, gather water and bring it back and forth. Very inefficient if you don't have a nearby water source. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea. Yep, so they are... Um, we've got a great setup there. Last year we won Washington DC's Black Box Honey Tasting Competition. Um, this year apparently they let someone from Maryland enter who won it, which I think is cheating. We, are, um, we harvest honey. We had last year I think 700 pounds, 720 pounds. This year about 580 or so. We sold 500 pounds, one pound jars. In an hour and a half, we announced a honey sale out the back gate of the Swiss Embassy. An hour and a half, 500 jars went. One jar person limit. Year before, we moved 700 jars. Started out the first hour with a two jar limit. After the the first hour, we had to cut it to one hour and two and a half hours. They were all gone. So the neighborhood's very welcoming of the bees. So what caused the production to go down from 700 to 500? Oh, it just depends on how your colonies are doing, how many you overwinter. We did, we did give away and sell off some colonies because we knew we'd be catching more colonies. New colonies, you won't get much production out of, but also it's rainfall dependent, you know, how... If they get locked in during a big nectar flow because there's storms going on the whole time, they may not get it. Uh, temperature, rainfall, season, maturity of the colony, lots of things can affect it. Well, bees play a, a critical role in pollinating wildflowers and gardens and row crops and everything else. I, mean, I hear things about the um, vitality and the impact of man and uh, pesticides and everything else on bee crops. Do you, do you have concerns about our honeybees and their, their future? I think they are the linchpin right now because most of the crops that could be natively pollinated with native bees are long gone and there's just too many of us not to have honeybees pollinating crops. Now, some crops like corn, it's their windborne pollination. They don't really need the bees, mm-hmm. but many fruits and vegetables need bees and there's just not the native pollinator. We've wiped out the habitat of native pollinators. There probably weren't enough of them anyway, the way we have massive amounts of monocrops. When you we say have, native pollinators, what do you mean? There's, Solitary bees, small colonial bees, there's butterflies, there's moths, there's all kinds of things, but they just don't have the horsepower to pollinate our industrial agriculture. And probably even if we went to a lot of small truck farms with a lot of varieties, we wouldn't be able to do it with native pollinators. We've created a system where this, it's in some ways, it's an invasive species, right? There were no honeybees here. They were brought over to Jamestown, you know, the uh-huh. first colony. It used to be that every farm in America had them, both for pollination, but also it was the only way to get something sweet on your farm, unless you lived in maple sugar country or grew sugar beets. So people had bees, and they've spread through the country. They locally adapted somewhat. 
new varieties have been brought over, of course, since Jamestown, but um, there's just, they aren't native. There are native pollinators, but they weren't designed, even if they had all their original habitat, to pollinate the, the way we grow crops now. So we need the honeybee. So they are in jeopardy because of one of the biggest threats is actually the almond crop. 80% of commercial bees go to California for to pollinate the almonds. So you wouldn't get a single almond unless the bees visited that flower that led to that almond. It's a massive use of water and of bees. We get all the bees there. There's a certain amount of drift where they don't make it back to the right colonies. So you can spread diseases through the whole, the whole, now we haven't had a, that we know of a major problem yet, but you could spread a virus through so all the bees bee in the country because bees are moved. Commercial beekeepers take them from the almonds to the apples to the strawberries. I can't tell you the order because it's not my business. But, wow. but so we need the bees, but we also need to be careful of the bees. So you've got pesticides. We had a phenomenon a decade or so ago called, before I started beekeeping, colony collapse disorder, which is wiping out colonies. It does not, there's other things that are wiping out colonies. Genetic kind of defects or? Uh, they, I'm not sure they ever got to the bottom of what created the, what at the time they were calling colony collapse syndrome. But there's still professional beekeepers that have a thousand colonies. Some years they'll lose over the winter just from viruses and other things that came over 90% of the bees. There's a mite that came out there called the Varroa mite in the 1980s that changed beekeeping forever because it is everywhere in the world except for I think either New Zealand or Australia. It came over out of Asia. It looks like a tiny red tick, very small, size of a pinhead and it attaches itself to the side of the bee and it sucks out essentially, they call it the fat body, but it serves as their liver. So it makes them very susceptible to, to viruses. So if your mite load gets up over maybe four or 5% of your bees have it, you're very likely that your bees aren't gonna be strong enough to make it through the winter and you'll just lose them. There's also a beetle that came over from Africa, the small hive beetle. There's a wax moth that came over in the 80s. So globalization changed the nature of beekeeping. It used to be, if you were a, a farmer in 1850, you could kind of just let your bees be until it was time to go collect your honey. Now there's a lot of pest management that goes on. And wow. Also, it's made it a lot more, a lot harder. So these things, and you know, what's the next, the next threat, right? But they don't have a diverse supply if you pull out the fence lines and all the, you know, they may not be prairie grasses, but the grasses and the native flowers and all have these big fields that are just a single crop. <coughs> Doesn't give the bees a lot to work with it or a lot of season and variety to gather nectar. See, they get it all at once if there happens to be nectar and pollen in, in the monocrop or getting that. Wow. Well, we've got a couple acres of um, gardens and forests, so I think m maybe next time you're in Iowa during a warm spell, have you help us um, figure out how to get a couple bee beehives going and give mm -hmm. them a healthy place to hang out. Well, you need to focus, if you want to do it this year on March, 
is about the good time to be ordering your bees if you're going to buy them or taking there's probably starting about right now the local beekeeping club has has the beekeeping course usually since beekeeping we consider starting in in late march you may have your first swarms and all it kind of gives you and you want to have your bees in and ready when the first nectar hits because they got a short season I was great because they'd get a second a nectar flow with golden wop, goldenrod in the fall. Uh-huh. So unlike D.C. where we just have, we're done by mid-July. They've got what they're going to get, then it's a matter of keeping them from... So I assume you have to have a, a suit, um, a net, if you're going to get into beekeeping? Or do you even use one? Well, I will tell you, I've been stung at least in 2022. I guess we're now 2023. 2022, over 200 stings at least. Is that because you don't wear netting? If you just... My first year when I was super careful and only had a couple hives, I probably had 19 stings just because things happen and you're around bees and you get one in your bonnet or you take your bonnet off too, too soon or you take your glove off and they get your... Finger. When you're being careful, you'll still be stung a little bit, and you really perfect your, you know, your enunciation of the F word. <laughs> but um, love it. <laughs> but the um, as you go on, you realize most of the time the bees are pretty gentle and they aren't going to sting you. And if you sting you, they sting you. It's not the end of the world. And being out there in August, going through. 20 beehives in a full bee suit is misery. So I generally start out, no matter what I'm doing, just with a baseball cap with a mosquito net over it. And, you know, sometimes I bear work gloves or no gloves. And then kind of read the bees. And sometimes I can read them enough to, before they get super agitated, go and change or wait to get stung a couple of times and go change. But my, my mentees and... Aaron, who's my senior mentee, so I should call her my partner now. <coughs> Make a lot of fun of me for how much stinging I, I get or how stung up I get because it's generally my, my own fault. But there's free medicine is what I always say when it happens. There's a whole thing of apitherapy where people go for various, various conditions and buy a whole tube of bees and you know, get themselves stung to get what they think is medicinal. So. We'll take it. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for your, your insights and your uh, into the Ukraine, into entrepreneurship, into being an appointee in the Department of Energy and all your adventures and travels. It's been enlightening and um, fantastic conversation. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Charles, for having me. It's been great. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes. And please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.